Hey, everybody. Uh, man, it has been a while since I have rapped at you. And um, I, my apologies for the delay in putting out this latest episode. Um, not to make excuses, but uh, things have been just crazy with my, uh, my business lately. And uh, as much as I am happy about all the new clients I'm getting and the work that I'm able to do, uh, I have been remiss in my duties as a podcaster. So I am sorry. And I am going to be doing better this summer. So stick with me. I'm going to try not to have any of these long intervals without a show um, ever again. So thank you for your patience. So the week before last, uh, what did we have? Like, uh, I think it was uh, like 11 states had primaries. Now, the one that I was watching was California. And for a number of reasons that we've talked about here before, you know, Part of the reason that I'm doing this podcast is that I am constantly thinking about lifestyle, where I'm going to live when I'm retired, what it's going to be like, what the laws are going to be like, what the crime is going to be like. And that's why I kind of am obsessing about California's demise, because, again, as I've said it before, as goes the West Coast, eventually so may go pretty much the rest of the country. And where are you going to go? So. I'm, I'm really just focused on California and watching it go down the toilet is frightening, not only for Californians, but really for the rest of us and for our futures. So long story short, Michael Schellenberger, I'm sure you're getting sick of my certifiable man crush on him, but you know, California, that was your only hope, people. And uh, in case you were not aware, he, uh, Michael Schellenberger, in the California primaries, he got like two or three percent. He was a very distant third. And California, it's only the top two. So, uh, you know, the two party system is alive and well and thriving in California. And the latest victim is Michael Schellenberger. So, anyway, Gavin Newsom, current sitting governor, uh, for lack of a better word, is a complete fucktard, okay? And if you still haven't read uh, San Francisco uh, by the independent candidate, Michael Schellenberger, well, former candidate, please at least, okay, if, you, if you're not willing to read the book, please at least listen to, he did a recent appearance on the Adam Carolla podcast, okay? And on this show, he covers a lot of ground. And this dude, as a homeless expert, and also as an energy slash climate expert, he's pretty up on what's going wrong with California. So I'll put a link to the show notes. So regardless of where you sit politically, if you're from California and if you think everything's going great down there, um, either way, I just highly recommend uh, listening to this guy's perspective and a fast, uh, low impact way to, to get exposed to Schellenberger is through that Adam Carolla podcast. So anyway, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, again, why do I harp on this stuff? You know, most of you don't live in California, but if you live in Texas, if you live in Florida, if you live in Arizona, Idaho, Colorado, look who's moving to your state in droves. Yes, it's Californians. They are exiting like rats off a sinking ship to escape the highest taxes in the country, the rolling blackouts, the drought. Yes, the drought and rolling blackouts and brownouts they're having, while at the same time, aggressively removing dams, hydroelectric dams, and planning to remove more. So for those of you sitting in the back, uh, there are these things directly upstream from dams called reservoirs, which hold water, water for drinking and water for irrigation. And during the years when there's insufficient rainfall or drought years like we're having now, many communities and farms 
depend on those reservoirs for water to drink and wa to water the crops. Crops like almonds, which all of the, the pro-dam removal hippies uh, and vegans just love, and which, by the way, California is the largest producer of. And Oh, and, and FYI, it takes a gallon of water to produce a single almond. Chew on that for a second. Anyway, oh, and California also produces more grapes than other states. So all you uptight vegan Karens who are getting upset about high Pinot Gris prices, well, time to zip it. Anyway, now that these dipshit Californians have elected a generation of incompetent waterheads like, well, like Gavin Newsom, like L.A. prosecutor uh, George Gascon, um, communist San Francisco DA Chesa Bodine, shit for brain San Francisco uh, Mayor London Breed, um, and, oh, and that stuffed shirt standing by while the city burns for nearly a decade, LA Mayor and all-around terrible human Eric Garcetti. This class of negligent clowns in cooperation with a giant network of city, county, and state bureaucrats who pat themselves on the back as their state draws in bums and junkies by the thousands from around the country to partake in California's open drug markets. Anyway, as Californians flee a state that's collapsing under the weight of the turds that they themselves elected, the laws that they helped enact, and the taxes they welcomed, now... These same citizens are heading your way, my friends, and they're going to vote exactly the same way for the most part when they land in your state. So in case you weren't following the primary a couple of weeks ago, Schellenberger, as predicted, uh, isn't going to make it to November. Um, it's going to be Newsom versus a Republican uh, named Brian Dolly. Um, and I can tell you exactly what the future holds. Four more years of nuisance ineptitude and look for the California exodus to continue as the drought gets worse, as energy costs soar uh, and more bums and junkies from the Midwest and southern states migrate into California seeking a better life. Uh, oh, which, by the way, uh, where they're paid in San Francisco, $520 a month in cash. So I guarantee if you're a heroin addict in Cleveland, they're not going to give you 500 bucks a month to support your drug habit, which is why. If you're a drug addict, you don't move to Cleveland, you move to San Francisco. Anyway, one more uh, one more quick note about the primary. So the genius residents of San Francisco a few years back elected this fucking asshole named Chesa Bodine as their district attorney. Uh, as you know, the job of a DA is to prosecute criminals who commit crimes. Well, um, this dude ran as an ultra-progressive whose stated goal was not to be tough on crime. Back when he was running, he said, quote, the tough on crime policies and rhetoric of the 1990s and early 2000s are on their way out, end quote. Well, as a result of his week on crime policy and revolving door approach to dealing with criminals, San Francisco has gone from somewhat of a shit show to a seriously dangerous place. And as part of this primary, they had a recall campaign for this turd, which was good, and it passed. Um, but what was amazing is that even with residents literally parking their cars with open windows and trunks as their only way to discourage the nightly smash and grabs. And with the number of Walgreens closing, which I've talked about before, like a dozen stores in the city because shoplifting went so parabolic under his watchful eye and black on Asian assaults reaching like crazy numbers. As the city flushes itself down the toilet in Chase of Bodine's recall, 
only about 55% of San Franciscans voted to recall the guy. Okay, so as all this is going on, only a little more than half the people think it's bad enough to recall their DA who doesn't prosecute crime. Okay, now in case you don't know, this Chesa Bonin dude is a certified ultra progressive nut job. His parents were in the weather underground, both convicted in the murder of two cops and a security guard. His grandfather was an attorney for Fidel Castro and Bodine out of college before going to law school, got a gig as a translator for Hugo Chavez. Okay. All this was public record. And those bona fides got San Franciscans so moist, they ushered him into office. And that's right. As he helped San Francisco turn into Thunderdome, well, Thunderdome with way more shit on the sidewalks, 45% of primary voters felt like he should keep his job. Seriously. Again, if you haven't seen San Francisco in the last decade, you might think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I've actually I got, speaking of San Francisco, I've actually got a job there in mid-July. So uh, I'm going to give you guys an up-to-date boots on the ground account of how things are going there when I get back. But again, why do I spend so much time bitching about California? Well, I know you're not moving to California, but California is coming to you. And I am Paul fucking Revere here. Okay. One last, last, last note before I move on. The Friday before the primary, your friends at the New York Times put together a nice little piece about the upcoming recall election and why ultra-progressive San Francisco might be fed up with their ultra-progressive DA. So this little note is about journalism, but the story happens to be about San Francisco. So uh, in this New York Times article, link in the show notes, uh, and it's a free link, by the way, I'm, I'm a subscriber and you can read it uh, for free. Anyway, in the article, they say that crime hasn't actually gotten worse. It says, there is no compelling evidence that Mr. Bodine's policies have made crime significantly worse in San Francisco. Overall, crime in San Francisco has changed little since Mr. Bodine took office in early 2020. So when I saw that, I mean, knowing what I know, my jaw dropped. Then a few paragraphs later, in the same article, it says, the city recorded 7,575 burglaries in 2020, 7,217 last year, a sharp increase of more than 45% from 2019, the year Bodine was elected. So if that's not an increase, I don't know what is. Now, I've made cracks about journalism or the lack thereof uh, that the New York Times is pumping out. But seriously, now on the same day that this New York Times article came out, our friends at The Economist, which still, I mean, that's it's still a, a kind of an iffy publication in and of itself, but they had their own take on the San Francisco situation. It painted a somewhat different picture of the state of things there. I'll put the link in the show notes, but just so you know, you're going to need to give them your uh, email address in order to read the Economist article. Um, you don't need to subscribe, but you'll need to register. But it's worth it. Um, we probably should all be reading The Economist at least somewhat regularly. Anyway, long story short, uh, The Economist tells of the cratering morale in the DA's office there in San Francisco, the crazy number of people who are quitting. Uh, and there's a telling little graphic showing how many cases are actually being prosecuted and how they're declining. And in Bodine's first two years, the count was down significantly. My point is, I've said it before, be careful where you get your news from and try to get it from multiple sources. Uh, you know, I know my man, uh, Howard Stern, will have you believe that you can get all the news you need from uh, the New York Times. But with each passing year, their standards, along with uh, reporting, get shoddier and shoddier, their journalistic standards. So you got to have multiple sources if you want to be informed. End of sermon. 
Okay, now on a completely different note, I got a little uh, text from a friend of mine yesterday. Uh, he lives in another state, so I rarely get to see him. But he was listening to my episode from, I think it was Memorial Day, where I just basically reminded you all to go to your various brokerage accounts and IRAs and make sure that your beneficiaries are up to date and correct. And his text said this, Rogue Retirement Lounge. Good. I checked my beneficiaries and one still had my ex-wife listed, though I changed seven years ago. Thanks for the advice in the process of changing. Okay. Now I got to tell you, his ex-wife was and is an evil shrew, and this is not an exaggeration. And that would have been brutal if he would have ended up giving away any more of his money to her when he kicks off. So I'm going to pat myself on the back. Turns out I'm doing God's work here. I'm changing lives. So thank you for joining me. Okay, one last thing I want to hit on today is what you're actually going to spend in retirement versus what you think you might spend in retirement. So, for example, a May 2nd article uh, on Motley Fool, which I'm not a fan of, but it, it is what it is, uh, an article by a CFP named Matthew Frankel says, uh, as if it's gospel, that when you retire, the rule of thumb is that you'll need 80% of your pre-retirement income to, quote, maintain the same standard of living after leaving the workforce for good. Well, I, I don't know how many retirees you've talked to lately, but there's a lot of folks out there who found out they actually spend considerably more after they retire. Why? Well, you, you know, you've got a lot more spare time. You might start traveling more. Um, hell, if you're like my dad, you might uh, take a lot of road trips and he seems to buy a new car every couple of years. Maybe you have more time to go out to lunch with friends. And now that lunch in most states is a $30 bill, that adds up. Um, so last Friday in the Wall Street Journal, or actually no, it was the Friday before last, Glenn Rufinock compiled some reader-submitted accounts and advice related to spending. And well, wanted to share that with you today. So Glenn writes, plan to be surprised. Interestingly, almost every reader asked me to warn people when approaching retirement. Your spending in retirement likely will equal or exceed what you're spending while working. Put another way, take the conventional wisdom about needing 70% to 80% of your pre-retirement income to maintain your standard of living later in life and junk it. Okay, here's one reader account from this same article. Quote, my wife and I spend 50% more in retirement than we did when we were working, says Bob Bailey, 77, a retired advertising executive in Evanston, Illinois. There are two causes. First, we have time for travel, especially international travel. Second, we have volunteered in our community and discovered many needs. As such, our charitable giving has substantially expanded. Okay, so Bob flies around the world and gives generously to local charities. That adds up even faster than $30 lunches. So next up, Kevin Bauman, a 68-year-old retired pharmaceutical executive in Santa Rosa, California. Quote, I couldn't see how I could spend less in retirement given that I'd have more free time. So I targeted 90%. As I got closer to retiring, I moved it to 100%. My reality turned out to be closer to 110%. Okay, the article continues. The single exception to this thinking among the comments we received, a couple who retired to a small town in Alabama. Their strategy, quote, we expected the cost of living here to be lower than that in a third tier city. However, we didn't expect it to be substantially lower. We live better than we did in the city, in a nicer home, engage in far more activities, 
and spend less. We would advise anyone planning retirement to consider moving to a small town for both quality of life and financial reasons, end quote. Okay, now that makes perfect sense. And that goes back to my advice that you should have a geographic plan B, whether it's domestic, like a small town in the Midwest or South, or an international destination where you can really stretch your dollars. And if you haven't heard it, uh, I've got an episode all about maximizing your retirement dollars by moving abroad. And uh, in that episode, I interviewed the great travel writer, Tim Leffel, who moved his family to central Mexico and built a great life where his expenses all in were the same as his mortgage back home in Florida. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. It's definitely worth a listen. Okay, next up in the article, Glenn steers the topic to the dreaded budgeting. It continues. Keep budgeting. If you develop a household budget for retirement, great. But a number of readers told us this isn't or shouldn't be a one-time exercise. It's critical, they said, to refine your budget annually. Quote, my wife and I consciously research ways to cost reduce each year, writes H.L. Singer, 76, a retired chief executive officer in Melbourne, Florida. Among their steps, small and large, reviewing and as necessary changing or simply canceling streaming services and magazine and newspaper subscriptions, booking travel a year in advance, fixing more meals at home, making better use of programmable thermostats, researching purchases, and then waiting for sales and coupons. Mr. Singer says, quote, we have found that by constantly looking for ways to lower expenses and buying smart, we can do a better job of making our retirement savings and pension go further. Okay, the article goes on, and if you're interested in checking it out, I'll put a link in the show notes, and uh, this link will get you past the paywall, so you don't need a Wall Street Journal subscription to read it. I do recommend going through it because it uh, does give you some food for thought, but that's it for today. Um, again, sorry about the, the delay in getting this episode out. Have a great weekend. Stay in touch. Um, I love listener email, so drop me a note if you have any questions or comments, and if you have any self-employed friends who might be interested in this content, please hit that share button and help me spread the word. Okay, I will talk to you soon. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.